Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we look at how our political institutions are failing and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. I'm James Walner, a Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. Well, hello, everybody. Today, we are going to talk about something that I wrote. Uh, I co-wrote a report that came out last week. It's a report called Democracy Maybe Attitudes on Authoritarianism in America. It's a report by the uh, published with the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group with Joe Goldman and Larry Diamond. And it covers a lot of questions uh, about what are Americans thinking about democracy these days? Are we facing a legitimacy crisis? Is there going to be violence? Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the report and excited to, to share some of the key findings with you all. Uh, but you know, first, I, I thought it's probably useful to put things in context a little bit. And I think the context is that a lot of folks, including myself, are quite nervous about how this election is going to go off in November. So I just kind of wanted to get a sense of how you all are feeling about this election. Uh, James? First, it's a great report. I definitely recommend everyone check it out um, and read it. But it's very optimistic. No, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's not as pessimistic as the title sounds. But it's, with regard to 2020, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a really odd thing because it's almost like you forget at times that there's a campaign that's happening right now um, because of the nature of the pandemic. But then when you look at it, you're right. I mean, this is a, a incredible year in American politics already. And then you add to it a presidential election that would that is extraordinary in any normal sense. And then you add all of this stuff and it comes together. And the question is, how do people react to it? And I think that the my worst case scenario for 2020 is that people just kind of give up on the election itself. And I think this report really speaks to a lot of that as well. And if they don't get the outcomes that they want, uh, then they are already primed on both sides to, to be apathetic about it or to at worst view those outcomes as illegitimate. And I think that reflects this underlying production view of politics that I've been talking about recently where, whereby we're more outcome oriented instead of the process. We've lost sight of the importance of participating in politics uh, to securing our freedom. And as long as that keeps up, I'm not sure that we can sustain the uh, these fabulous institutions of ours. Julia? So I have, I guess I have a couple of, of reactions. Um, I mean, I, I first want to make um, a little bit of a, a note about the title of the report, and I don't mean to trivialize it, but I was curious if there were, if this is supposed to be a reference to the Oasis album, definitely, maybe, or if this was supposed to get the Carly Rae Jepsen song stuck in our heads, because it did that. Um, but like, uh, Thank you. Now you have... I can't get Oasis out of my head now. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, titles... Titles are really hard. Uh, titles so are the worst. I, I didn't come up with the title. Title... I know, so, I know. Okay, so... We fought, guys, we fought... We hold on, guys, I just want to say we fought a whole revolution over this, and we don't have titles in America. There are no kings and no queens <laughs> and no earls and no dukes in America. No titles. It's literally in the Constitution. Okay, we are chaos already. So here's the thing. Um, I will say, James, I, I take your point that in some ways it's like the election is like the 12th biggest story of 2020. But on the other hand, if you live in a swing state, you would feel a little bit differently about that, right? You're like just trying to rewatch Friday Night Lights and you're bombarded with Hulu ads about the election. So it's, you know, it, I think this plays out differently in different parts of the country. And that's important to our, the overall set of questions we're looking at today. The other thing, so I guess to foreshadow some of what, what goes on in the report, right, that the idea that I think a lot of people are worried about is we have a chaotic election and the the subtext, or maybe it's not subtext, the text is that Trump has not verbally displayed great commitment to democratic ideals 
and that, you know, if the election is close or contested, he won't leave the White House or we have chaos, we have violence, we don't have a clear election outcome. And I don't really know how to think about that scenario. We've had a number of chaotic and contested elections in American politics. They're not that unusual. And if uh, this is, we can even add this to the show notes, but I have a, a lecture about these that I gave after the Iowa caucuses back when I was still, you know, teaching in a classroom and it's available in a public Dropbox if anyone wants it. But it's, um, they're just not that uncommon and they happen for a variety of, of reasons. And so the question then I think is, would this one be worse? Because they, they happen and they tend to, we tend to sort of roll over them um, in a kind of anticlimactic way. And the question about would this one be worse is partly linked to Trump himself, is partly linked to the, to the specific nature of partisan polarization right now, is I think specifically linked maybe to the nature of the partisan media. So there's a lot going on there. But the other thing that I want to allude to, and I've got a lot to say along these lines um, throughout the podcast, is that to me, the worries about democracy are often like not the thing you're looking at. So there's a lot of attention being paid to this. I was a a co-author on a report that was put out by um, a, a large group of election scholars um, led by by Rick Hassan at uh, UC Irvine earlier this year about potential election scenarios and what to do about them. And that report's been getting a lot of attention and um, a lot of media coverage and people really thinking about how to how to address uh, basically like election administration problems. So I think that that's, I'm a little bit optimistic that people are paying attention to those issues. And that's, you know, so that's one set of problems, but that these, the real problems with democracy are often kind of lurking behind the questions that we think to ask. Um, and that's, that's really my concern is sort of not just, not just people's verbal support for democracy or not just election administration, not to downplay those, but the, but sort of deeper representation questions, participation questions that that James alluded to, I, I think that there is more going on here than the typical narratives tend to tend to touch on. Well, I, hopefully we will go below the surface as we always do on this podcast. So yeah, I, I'm worried about this election. I'm worried about it because Trump has shown no commitment to democratic basic rules of of peaceful transfer of power and legitimacy of elections. Uh, In fact, he is almost daily uh, making the case that mail-in ballots are going to lead to widespread fraud, which is just completely baseless and untrue. Even his attorney general uh, is now echoing that. And, you know, there is going to be a lot of challenges in making this election run smoothly. We saw incredibly long lines in Georgia and Wisconsin. There's going to be probably a shortage of poll workers unless a lot of people volunteer. Maybe not all polling places will open mail-in ballots. There's a lot of states that have a lot of work to do. Colorado had a smooth primary election because they have used mail-in ballots for a while, Uh, but other states have taken a long time to get counts. Will people understand that they have to be patient what happens when votes shift after uh, the the election day. I, I mean, just the, the level of difficulty and the lack of resources and the lack of experience and the high stakes and, and, and then throw Trump into all this. And I really am not sure what, what we're going to have. And, you know, I mean, Biden has also been saying things he doesn't think Trump's going to leave office uh, So, you know, and there's that's what a lot of Democrats believe. And then there's also the issue of the Electoral College. Uh, You know, if Trump wins, it will probably be that he wins the Electoral College narrowly and loses the popular vote pretty soundly, which will be the third time that's happened in six years and the second time that's happened in a row, which further adds to the illegitimacy. So with that all as the background, uh, this report is an analysis of survey data. So, you know, there's inherent limitations on what we can ask in survey questions. Uh, But, you know, I'll I'll kind of give a top line analysis 
of the report, and then we can dive into it in a little bit more detail. And, you know, the, the top line analysis is basically, you know, a good news, bad news story. The good news is that, you know, most Americans, about 80 percent, still pretty solidly support democracy. Uh, and that number has been consistent now uh, for a few years. We've been polling the same questions. Uh, but at the same time, there's, you know, kind of a softness to that. There's there's more people, you know, it's a panel study. So people go in and out of uh, supporting democracy as the best system. People flirt with authoritarian alternatives over that panel. I mean, on the one hand, you can view that as uh, view the fact that only a, a very small percentage, about six or seven percent consistently oppose democracy over a three year panel. On the other hand, the fact that more people dabble in and out of it is slightly worrying. Uh, there's some findings in there about the extent to which partisanship you know, overrides uh, a, a sort of generic abstract commitment to democracy. But you know, if the president acts because the president thinks it's the right thing and that president is Trump and you're a Republican, you know, you're likely to support the president running over traditional uh, democratic checks and balances. In, a, in an abstract scenario, of course, the president should be subject to Congress's oversight. But in a specific scenario, like impeachment, a lot of Republicans who say that Congress should oversee the president simultaneously say that President Trump should ignore congressional subpoenas. So which is it? And then we get to election scenarios. And you know, there's a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans who are quite open to uh, uh, invalidating the results of the election if their side claims or an interference or illegal voting, or, or even if there's a deviation between the popular vote and the Electoral College. And then when it comes to violence, you know, about one in five partisans say violence might be at least a little justified if their side loses, and about one in 10 partisans say a lot or a great deal and you know a lot of those partisans are also the same partisans who say that they think that a challenge would be legitimate so i don't know what's going to happen in november but you know i think there are certainly kindling if somebody pours a fire on it and you know this is in some ways just like for years, people have been saying at some point there's going to be a pandemic. We should be prepared for it. Uh, and, uh, you know, nobody took it seriously. I think now we know that there are certain predictable disasters and we should be prepared for it. And that means investing considerable resources in election administration. And that means political leaders on both sides, uh, you know, speaking up now to invest those resources, to make sure that. Uh, we understand that we might not get a count on Election Day and to really make a commitment to accepting the results. But at the same time, there, there certainly are uncertainties in, in how fairly this election will be administered. Uh, so it does make me wonder a little bit about, you know, I mean, maybe there maybe there will be legitimate claims of that the election was was decided wrongly. So I don't know. I'm hoping you guys can help me think about this a little more. Yeah, I just wanted to start off in a way that I think ties this report to the past episodes um, and the themes that have been that we've been talking about and discussing over the past several weeks, because it seems the common thread here has been that when the legitimacy of our institutions and our system declines, you see increases in, in kind of extra political activity, civil disobedience, all other types of uh, uh, types of activity outside of those institutions. And I think this report helps us contextualize that a bit more. But I guess, Lee, the questions I had, uh, two very overarching questions that, and then Julia, can we can fill in the details. But the one, the first question I think is, you know, what do we mean by democracy and then, or Americans? And then the second question is, you know, building on that, is it really partisanship um, that is the underlying cause here, or is it something deeper that is actually common to both sides? Because, and I think you're um, in the chart, um, in the report, the, uh, the data on support for unilateral executive action varies by party, especially when Trump is specifically mentioned. 
I think this really does reflect the outcome-oriented production view of politics. And I think how we answer these questions informs our understanding of the problem and basically then helps to determine what are the steps that we need to, to safeguard the system and to defend against um, threats to, uh, to uh, the legitimacy of our elections, to the sustainability of our institutions. And, um, and I didn't pull that out of the report per se, but did you all, in lurking in the back of your head, have an idea of this? And what is your view on the data and how do you answer these two questions? So let's talk about these two questions. What is democracy? Um, you know, to me, democracy is what we have as democracy in America is, you know, regular ele elections, free and fair elections uh, and, you know, representative institutions. Uh, you know, maybe we don't really meet those standards entirely, but, you know, democracy itself is kind of an ideal. Uh, what do most people have in mind when they they say democracy is a good system? You know, I, I don't know. I think we need to do more qualitative data. I think it's, you know, uh, people give all kinds of different definitions of democracy. But broadly, I think there's a sense of democracy being a system where we get to pick our leaders. And if we don't like what they're doing, we get to pick different leaders. As for the question of partisanship, uh, I think one thing that would certainly be interesting would be to ask these questions again when a, a Democrat is president. And I, I think if we had asked these questions when Obama was president, I think you'd probably see uh, Democrats uh, supporting more executive action. I mean, certainly that was the rhetoric is that, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to remember when Republicans were complaining about the imperial Obama presidency and talking about how the executive branch had, had gained far too much power. I haven't heard those criticisms in a few years, but I'm sure I'll hear them again if Joe Biden becomes president. Uh, so it, it's clear that a lot of this is driven by partisanship, but you know I think you're you're right, James, that there are deeper underlying problems with our democracy. That you know there's a there's a wide support for uh, you know I should say there's a there's a wide distrust of political institutions across both sides. You know, the share of people who say that this country is on the wrong track is something like 75 or 80 percent. And that is, you know, certainly there's a partisan gap there. I think most people uh, feel that the system is broken, whichever side you're on. Uh, so, you know, I think obviously hyper partisanship has contributed to a, a broken system, uh, but there's something certainly deeper here. Uh, and the share of people who are satisfied with democracy and how democracy is working in America has declined considerably over the years. So yeah, there, there's deep dissatisfaction, deep distrust. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's just a, a real challenge of how do you build legitimate political institutions when nobody really feels like the political institutions we have are working well. I mean, I think that there's there's so there's two questions here that we're considering. And one is the kind of stuff that mostly that your report is concerned with, which I would essentially I would essentially classify as democratic governance. That, you know, what kinds of institutions are, are working, what kinds of institutions are capable of rising to the challenge of crisis government governance? How do people feel their interests are being represented and what are their views about how that should happen? Which I think that's actually the sort of deeper question that I sometimes get a little bit frustrated with in the what I like to call the democracy discourse. Right. So the surveys like these surveys like Brightline Watch, um, many of these wonderful conferences that in the before times when travel was a thing. I know, Lee, we often uh, encountered each other in this circuit. Um, of these kinds of academic and sometimes practitioner conferences about democracy in the U.S. and Europe. And, you know, there's this kind of conversation about, do you support democracy? But somehow we never quite get at what does it mean when people say, I want, for example, to draw in the report, I want a strong president that doesn't have to deal with, with Congress or the courts. And there's, there's a couple interpretations of that. And you know, I think it's striking, for example, in your 
in your data that independents are the the group that most strongly, when we're talking about partisanship, most strongly supports those options. To me, that suggests people who maybe have not have not thought about the sort of collective aspect of democracy very much. Um, but the other element of that is like, do people think they have the right to kind of essentially dominate other people? And who, you know, on the basis of what, which in the US is very, is, you know, always something that's infused with, with race, I think, right? Who thinks they have the right to dominate other people? Who thinks they have the right to have their needs addressed first in the policymaking process? This is a different set of questions from those of legitimate elections and an election administration. They're obviously these are linked, right? They're linked at the point of race. They're linked at the point of legitimate opposition. They're linked to the point of institutional legitimacy, but they are separate. And this is, I know I've, I've touted this before. And it's so, you know, if you've touted your year old piece once, you might as well do it again. Um, but I wrote this piece last year and foreign affairs came out almost like a little over a year ago where I essentially said American democracy is at its high point. Um, people are participating. We have much more diverse representation in elected office than we ever have had. We've never seen this, you know, many people of color, Muslims, LGBT people um, holding positions of power. So democracy is great. Governance is a disaster. The way in which we translate the the vast array of interests and preferences in this large country is just we have no... I would say, I mean, this is a very categorical statement, but we have no schema for that, right? We have no way of making sense of that. And so my big concern about democracy is not so much do people support different things in the abstract, but do we have this sort of sense of essentially minority rule? Minority rule is my new obsession and I'm warning everyone right now. Do we have the sense that the way our institutions are structured, that it's very easy for political minorities not just to exert a veto, which has typically been part of our politics, but to really run the show, to set the agenda um, and to enact policies that are bad for the majority of the country. And I'm seeing, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, right? We have a a cross-racial, multicultural, cross-class, very loose coalition majority in this country. And despite that majority, those people don't necessarily have a lot of power. So that's the, that, that's where I see this. And I have to admit that I am sometimes frustrated that the democracy discourse doesn't take these uncomfortable questions more seriously. Those are great questions, Julia, and, and let's let's dig a little deeper into them. I, I just want to say a few things about what we know in the data to, to support your assertions um, a, about sport for authoritarianism being a sport for who has power and a, a sort of unwillingness to engage in the political process. So few things that consistently correlate with support for various forms of authoritarian rule. One is, and this has been found in, in numerous studies, are, you know, very uh, racially conservative views. A strong correlate in a previous study we did is a view that uh, European heritage is is, uh, is important to being an American. Very strong correlate with uh, support for authoritarian leadership. So that's that that supports your your hypothesis. Uh, also, the other clear correlate with support for authoritarian leadership is kind of disengagement from the political process. People who don't really follow politics that closely, uh, people who you know don't really feel represented by either of the parties. So there's a, a sort of frustration that the political process doesn't work, so we might as well just have a, a strong man run the show. And I think that's what you see in a lot of developing countries, that you see demagogues and strong authoritarian leaders uh, emerge when there's a sense that politics is in chaos. And certainly that's what George Washington uh, feared, even in, you know, in, his, in his farewell address, which is often cited as a case against political parties. Uh, but you know, I think this this distinction that you raised between democracy as an abstract value of of sort of participation and representation, uh, 
really it's not such an abstract value. It's a, you're arguing that, that actually we, we have democracy in that sense versus governance, which is sort of the way that democracy is actually working. Uh, and, you know, that, that's something that comes through in this report is that people support democracy as a system of governance, although, again, I'm not sure how different people understand that. And that's a limit of the survey data. Uh, but people are very dissatisfied with how governance is actually working. So I, so I actually just would, would love for you to kind of expand a little bit on this distinction, be, as you see it, between democracy and governance. And, you know, as, as we often say in the punditry business, if it's, if it's worth saying once, it's worth saying again. That I'm I'm really trying to reconcile myself to that as a philosophy that I should just keep saying the same thing lots of times as a I guess a political analyst or whatever. Um yeah, I mean in the piece essentially what I talk about is the range of people who have had access to power and as as a measure of the quality of democracy. And I think that this is I don't know if this is a universal measure across you know, across different countries. It seems to me like this is a pretty important universal concept, but I think this is especially crucial in the context of the United States. And part of this is because of this, the framing again, and I'm kind of painting your report in with this very large group of democracy discourse artifacts that I'm frustrated with. So it's, this is not your fault or Larry's or anybody, but. So when you, when you mean democracy discourse artifacts, <laughs> which I love that as a phrase, like you're, you're referring to like all, all these reports, the bright line watch, can you, can you just spell that out, what you mean a little bit? Yeah, so since since the 2016 election, I think I've been to 11 academic conferences, many of which have, um, have also have some practitioners or at least some journalists also present. And we ask a lot of, and they're usually a combination of people who study the U.S. and people who study other countries. And we talk about democratic backsliding. We talk about creeping authoritarianism. We talk about institutions. We talk about is democracy on decline. And I, I've written some critical pieces about this at Mistress of Faction. And I feel terrible every time because I really enjoy these and I enjoy the people and they feed us really well. And, you know, I'm such an ungrateful brat. But one thing which I started pointing out at these conferences is there's almost never any people of color at them or any people from underrepresented groups in U.S. politics. There's very rarely um, a scholar of race. There's very rarely a scholar of immigration, although there's often a lot of people who are critical of certain aspects of immigration. And to me, it just seems like this is if you talk about democracy and this isn't front and center, this is a real problem. And so I was trying to reframe that in the in the piece. You like that we're doing an episode about Lee's piece and I'm like, let's talk about my piece. <laughs> but I tried to reframe that a little bit and saying, look, in American democracy, one of the ways that we in these these academic events and these reports that come out, we tend to frame this is around norms. And we tend to also frame it around like this is, American democracy is at its nadir. It is a is low point. Um, and what we want is to go back to where we were before. I think this the dam has broken a little bit of really over the past month over, over this set of questions. But it's not obvious to me that there's a golden age to go back to. I've, I've also written quite a lot about this at, at 538. Um, and so I look at these moments where people will talk about, you know, that was truly a, you know, a pluralistic moment in the 60s or whatever, the 80s and Reagan and Tip O'Neill. And like, you know, who would not be invited to any of those rooms? Me, right? Or any women of people of color in a lot of those settings. So that's, I mean, I'm not invited to them now either, but this is really, this is the only room I'm really invited to. Um, but you're always the, welcome. Thank you. But that's so to me, what I was trying to do in this piece was to reframe how we talk about democracy to say, well, you know, what is what is actually going well? And how is that? How is that actually intrinsically linked to some of the problems of governance, some of the problems of institutional trust? It's like once democracy becomes real, that's when people start getting uncomfortable with it. This is like it's like the real world uh, version of democracy, right? People stop being polite, start getting real. Yeah, let's we, we keep it real on this show. What Julie is touching on is the contradiction that Marx, Karl Marx, recognizes, and with the Industrial Revolution, which is how do you make a, a political system that has for centuries depended upon an aristocracy supported by a laboring class, which is either in servitude or not, 
that then has the leisure and the free time to participate in politics. And with the Industrial Revolution, what happens is for the first time in human history, you have uh, universal equality, both in terms of not in necessarily a, a narrow legal sense, but also in terms of an ability to to participate in politics in a very real sense in terms of having a job and then also taking part in political activity. And political parties are developing around the same time to help facilitate that participation as well. And, you know, obviously I, I have a different take on it than Marx. I think, you know, Marx, I think, rejects politics. I think that it can work. And I think the broader the circle of uh, in the wider the participation, the more diverse the people, I think the better it is. I think that's the secret of a, the American founding. But the fundamental thing, it seems to me, and uh, Julia, I'd be interested to see what you think about this, is that, you know, if I'm looking at the late 60s, which are similar periods of racial unrest, of uh, political uncertainty, um, a lot of issues are happening, and new issues are emerging that are dividing the parties. All of these things are you know, going on and American politics seems pretty bleak. Violence is all over the, you know, Kent State's happening, I guess, in the early 70s and the polls on Kent State right after that happened. I was it was astonishing to me how many people thought that the the steps taken in, in the in the casualties that that um, occurred when the troops shot the students, that that was justified. It was I, it was credible to me. But what seems to me the difference between then and now, back then, no one was happy with American politics. Conservatives weren't happy. Progressives weren't happy. No one was happy. But what, what did they do about it? They all organized. They then started doing the kinds of things that our framers did, that people have done throughout American history. They tried to take steps to then re-engage in the political debate, both on the outside to influence the inside and then also within our institutions. And you could have this violence happening on the outside and this incredible incredible issues that are tearing apart or revealing, I should say, deep contradictions in the American experience. And they're dealing with them in, in a very imperfect way, but that's the nature of a free society. And then you look at today, I don't believe that, I think our issues are important, but I don't think they rise to the level of, you know, the, a lot of the issues like the civil rights issues, the Vietnam War, women's rights. I mean, a lot of the issues that we were grappling with in the civil rights era were, I mean, in the in the 60s and 70s were really intense issues. And yes, you know, are we going to deliver health care via a direct subsidy or through the tax code? I mean, yeah, that's important. I get it. But it's not necessarily of the same caliber. And yet we are paralyzed today by these issues. And yet we, and no one is also satisfied with the status quo, but we refuse to to re-engage in the act of politics because we we see politics itself as illegitimate. And I think it's conflict is the greatest example here. We think that conflict and disagreement are bad. When you go to these conferences, Julia, you know, the sense that I take away from them is everything's great so long as everybody agrees with me. And the second that I have to compromise with an equal who has a strongly held view on the other side, I say that they're going to undermine the system. And I think that reflects the under, and that's present on both sides, and that reflects the underlying kind of shift towards a kind of a Marx socialist type politics as production means and ends type view of politics. And I think conservatives have that just as much as, as progressives. And and I, and that's what I see is the it's the commonality on both sides right now in American politics that scares me. And I think this really comes out if you look at Lee's chart um, in his report and the support for unilateral executive actions. And just look at where Republicans are. I mean, they've come a long way from James Burnham's Congress and the American tradition. They now, we they no longer talk about judicial supremacy. They embrace unilateral executive action. They are no longer the party of Congress as they once were. Can I jump in here? And then I'll, I'll let you defend your own uh, report a little bit, Lee. But when I was reading this report, the, the era that came to mind for me was not the 60s so much as about a century ago or a little more in the kind of height of the progressive era, where you have people really seriously rethinking the structures of um, of democracy and you actually have a shift toward both a stronger presidency and a more robust executive branch, including not just the individual president, but a uh, more robust administrative state. And you also have these moves toward more direct democracy. And in some ways, this represents procedural preferences, right? This rep this represents a kind of vision of what democracy should look like. And it's very much rooted in this notion that the that the existing system wasn't very responsive to people's needs. But it's also very much rooted in a set of, of specific 
policy preferences and interests, right? It's not like a neutral, oh, we're going to retool the rules because it's just better that way. This was very much, it wasn't divided clearly along partisan lines, whether people supported these kinds of reforms, but it was still, it was very much like, if you thought that what democracy should be is greater regulation of the economy, more labor laws, then, you know, you were going to be on the side of progressive. And also there's a lot of, there's a lot of racial baggage there, that I'm going to choose not to get into at this point. But that's what it kind of reminds me of is this sort of great institutional retooling. And there, I think there's also a clue in the progressive era that we don't think enough about in, in the democracy discourse, which to me is is workplace democracy and labor policy. And I don't you know, know a ton about labor policy. It's not my, it's not my area of expertise, but it strikes me that the way that people experience democracy or lack thereof, the way people experience the state, the way people experience power through their employer in a private setting, these things are really crucial to people's sense of whether they're whether they have control over their lives, right? And whether the power that is exerted over them is also accountable to them. And we tend in in this discourse, and I'm certainly guilty of this, right? I'm a scholar of national parties and the presidency, thinking a lot about about national institutions, about, you know, is there a robust judiciary? Is there retaliation against national media? These are all concerns for sure. But I think that these are not necessarily the forefront concerns of people who are frustrated about about democracy. I think people experience power in politics in a very different way. And if we ask different kinds of questions, we would get a different and maybe more detailed picture. Wow. There's so much there. Julia, uh, to dig into, uh, we could like do like three or four episodes. Uh, so, you know, I, I think one of the things that this conversation is really highlighting for me is that there's sort of a, a short term uh, kind of top down institutional elite level question about democracy. And then there's a longer term uh, social movements kind of, you know, who, who is represented and who's participating and, you know, frankly, much more substantive policy-related question about democracy. And, you know, I think the sort of short-term, how do we hold this election without things falling apart has a, a sort of urgency that attracts a lot of attention. Uh, and, you know, particularly it's the concern of a lot of people who are political elites who you know feel like they have a stake in the existing system at some level even if they feel like it doesn't really work but it it, it is a system that they know and you know the, there's long been this divide i was you know looking at this uh, classic piece uh, from herb mccloskey uh, 1964 uh, article. Uh, I'm trying to trying to pull it up here, uh, but I mean, basically, it, he has a, you know, this distinction between political elites who kind of believe in all of the sort of aspects of liberal democracy much more than the ordinary people, but at the same time, the ordinary people are much more populist in their economic views, and so there's kind of this tension between political elites sort of having a you know, quote unquote, you know, classically liberal view of things and a bunch of people in the country saying, ah, you know, but but we we want to make sure that like we have decent health care and like good jobs and like labor gets its share. Uh, so these are not new questions. Uh, I think the the uh, comparison to the progressive era is spot on. And I've really been thinking a lot about these parallels. And you know, I think we should really maybe, you know, do an episode where we dig a lot deeper into into some of these parallels uh but you're you're absolutely right that there's a a sort of elite fetishism fetishization of procedural democracy uh that is often really substance substance free it's just the idea you know and, and i sometimes fall guilty a little bit of this i think myself and you know i think it's a, a fair criticism of the report that it is you know a little bit you know, overly focused on maintaining this process. I mean, certainly, like, if things 
devolve into chaos and there's violence and we don't have a legitimate election, you know, I think that's a tremendous problem. But I think that it's you know not necessarily going to be solved by only by just having partisans on both sides accepting the outcomes. But there's deeper structural problems about, you know, who is represented and how people feel that their concerns are actually taken seriously by governance. And you know, those are not going to be solved just by, you know, mailed ballots. We, we need something a little bit more fundamental. I, I you know, in, in thinking through this conversation and the report and what do I take away from it? I don't, I'm not sure that it's necessarily, you know, elites without substance, right? Because I think that there is an outcome here lurking behind a lot of these procedural discussions that people have in mind. And I think what's worrisome about the elite discourse today is the extent to which we no longer think about our institutions as places where equal people adjudicate claims or their representatives adjudicate claims on their behalf. And I think our concern about elections, while certainly understandable and important, elect, there's a lot more to American politics than what happens every four years. And we don't choose our rulers in, in those elections. You know, John C. Calhoun and Karl Marx both had a kind of dissimilar view about elections, Hannah Arendt as well, that, you know, if you just kind of pull the, the vote, you know, the, the lever in the voting booth and you choose your rulers. And then, yes, America is different because we can choose our rulers again. But I, I you know, I, I don't I don't agree with that. I don't think that's the correct understanding of, of American politics. American politics is about creating a space in which people and their elected representatives can participate and adjudicate their claims. And those claims are very real and very understandable. And it's not just the outcomes. It's the actual process of adjudication and the rules and need to make to ensure that everyone has a right to participate in that process. And I think what worries me about the report not about the report, but about the data that the report depicts, is that it it affirms this, this suspicion that I've had for a while, which is as long as Americans think that politics is about production, then they focus on controlling the means of production, which means they focus on elections, because that's when you get gavels and presidents and Supreme Court justices and everything else. And it's a short jump from that to, well, we didn't win the, the election for the factory foreman this week, so to hell with the factory, right? And they, instead of disagreeing inside our institutions, you say, well, you know, it's an illegitimate election and you delegitimize the other side because they have different outcomes than you have. And everything is a means to an end and you can rationalize anything at that point. Once that happens, the end over, it becomes the most important thing. And every end then becomes just another means to another end. And it goes on and on and on until we lose sight of why we have these institutions in the first place. And I think that's where we are right now on both the left and the right. And I, you know, I hope that we can kind of get back to a place where not necessarily it was great. I don't, I agree with Julia. There were lots of people who couldn't participate and the world changes. But I think underlying that was a commitment to our institutions on both sides, on both extremes. And, and an expectation that those institutions could work for the people. And the progressive period, ironically, I think by you see this with the drop in participation. We've talked about this in past episodes. Um, you know, the drop in voter participation really begins with the progressive period by hamstringing politics and by saying politics is corrupt. Yeah, I, politics can be bad and corrupt, but politics itself, if you politicize something, that's a good thing. That means that you are operating in the realm of persuasion and bargaining and negotiation with an equal part participant. You know, that's what we want. But yet today, if I want to delegitimize you, I say, Lee, I say, why are you politicizing this issue? And I place you outside that realm of accept that circle of acceptable political conflict. And that's how we win debates today. And that's how we try to win elections. And I don't think our institutions are sustainable with that view. I'm politicizing this issue because you told me that, that I should politicize. We should politicize that. everything because as far as I'm concerned, Everything is within that realm of what we ought to be discussing and talking about and debating. And through that, we get a better understanding of what it is that we know and what we should do. Well, the, I mean, the progressive era, I mean, there there was certainly clearly politics was was corrupt uh, in the Gilded Age. And, you know, clearly the rich had uh, too much power. And, you know, the the progressives you know, saw parties as the enemy and had this you know idea that there was some, you know, 
perfect way to run things that would be fair and just. And so you like a factory. You didn't really well, exactly. And you didn't really need politics. And the and ordinary people and scientific administrators would inherently come to the same conclusion because they were both wise and the only people who, you know, were were led astray were politicians and partisans. So, you know, and that, you know, I think that that idea is is still with us in many ways. Uh, and the, the problem is, you know, if politics is is about gaining control as a opposed to actually, you know, participating in a, in a process of negotiation and, uh, and persuasion, then, you know, what you have is a sense that if my side wins, that's everything. And if my side loses, that's everything. And no wonder our elections are incredibly contested and high stakes. And no wonder half of the country feels completely despondent if it, if it loses. But the irony is, is that nobody is actually able to use that power to, to do as much as, as they promise. And so everybody is disappointed and unhappy. Nothing works. And we're stuck. And yet we, we are unable somehow to explore other ways of, of organizing our democracy because we're so caught in this illusion that our side is just going to dominate the other side somehow. So I think we're getting close to the to to our time together, uh, the end of our time together. So let's let's try to wrap up. Julie, do you want to offer some concluding thoughts? Yeah. So I mean, I find myself um, in in a lot of agreement, particularly with with James here. So that's that's important. I guess my concluding thought, since I didn't address some of the specific stuff in the report, I'm still really stuck on this idea that independents. Um, are the ones who have the most support for some of these more authoritarian arrangements, particularly where, as regards the executive, like that sort of strikes me as very, very deeply rooted in a specific presidential and anti-partisan politics of the last century. So I would like to figure out a way in which we can really get at people's attitudes and historically contextualize them. So I, I'm going to conclude with a research agenda, which is, you know, always a, a fan favorite. Um, and also that I kind of want us to make t-shirts that say politicize everything. Um, so yeah, that's, but I mean, the report, I've sort of slagged a lot on the democracy discourse and the way in which the report approaches democracy, but knowing more is always better. And I think this report's really, is really informative and it helps us structure some of the more more immediate, uh, you know, how we might look at some of the more immediate concerns about election administration and about limit putting limits on presidential power that are that are really crucial. I just I want people to take it as a springboard and go even you know deeper into some of these some of these concepts. So I'll leave it there. We should do uh, koozies, hats, t-shirts, dog collars, all sorts of things. We could you know, a lot of merch politicize that or politicize this or politicize anything um yeah i i think my takeaway from this or what i would what i want to think more about and what i think this report has really sparked in my mind is you know and I've, I've spent a lot of time saying this problem is there's a common problem on both sides but i think that the shift in that i'm thinking through in my head anecdotally admittedly of the republican party over the past say 75 years in terms of the institutional focus is remarkable to me. And I'd like to dig into this more. And if you think about it, Republicans once were really anchored in Congress for various reasons. And conservatism itself was focused on Congress for various reasons. And then I think you first see it with the executive in foreign policy, um, the strong unilateral presidency, and then eventually with the courts. I mean, Phyllis Schlafly wrote a book about judicial supremacist and and Today, you can't find a conservative in America that even says the words judicial supremacy. And that's remarkable to me. And I think it, it aligns, while they have very different outcomes, it aligns, I think, very neatly with the uh, progressive movement as well. And I think it reflects a lot of the same underlying stuff. Um, and so I, I think we need, to, we need to think through that. We need to work through that. Because I, and I think that the data affirms that, at least my my read of it in this report. And again, I would strongly encourage uh, all of our listeners to check this report out. It is a very, very interesting um, 
analysis of the the survey data on public opinion uh, in America and American politics. This has been really a great conversation and, and uh, really glad that, that we were able to discuss this report. Uh, you know, uh, to, to James, your point about Phyllis Schafly and conservative criticism of judicial supremacy. I mean, in the, in the 1960s, of course, that was the Warren Court, which was very liberal. And, she, and, I, and I would just add, sorry to interrupt, that she wrote this book in like 04, 2004, 2002. I, I forget. Oh, oh, that, oh, it's a recent book. Oh, yeah. Book. I mean, it was, it, was, it was a relatively recent book, but I, I take your point. And, and, and she maintained this, you know, she reflected a different kind of conservatism, although ironically was very hawkish on foreign policy that, you know, that transcended um, you know, or that, that persisted from the Warren court all the way through to the uh, to the Rehnquist court and the Rehnquist there. I mean, yeah. And I think of her as as being rooted in in that that 60s, you know, uh, backlash to counter backlash to the, the countercultural revolution politics. So, I mean, and this, you know, this, this brings me back to our conversation with Senator Mike Lee about the, the role of ideas versus political interests. And there's always going to be some level of political interest uh, masquerading as ideas. But I think, you know, one of the things about our politics is that it's just so transparent to everyone, the extent to which even ideas are just, you know, in many cases, power masquerading as as principle. And that's because we have a politics that is all about gaining power uh, and not about doing anything with that power. And it's all about dividing the country in half uh, in order to gain that power through some narrow advantage. And you know, it really shuts down thinking when everything gets into this binary fight over who has control. And you know, that that's the that's the big thing at stake here uh, is that we have this politics that, you know, it, it is bound to make every election a legitimacy crisis because the other side taking power is fundamentally illegitimate. And until we have a politics in which there are ways in which, you know, different representative voices can be represented you know, in governance, no matter who or which side wins a narrow electoral victory, you know, we're going to continue to have these fights. And so, you know, the, the decline of democracy is a function of institutions that don't allow us to really participate or feel like our voices are represented and heard in governance and you know lead political elites to you know make us feel like the other side is illegitimate and you know every election is this incredibly high stakes election uh, and that somehow if they get in power they're going to solve all our problems and then they never do so you know i think there's certainly you know julia's critique on the whole democracy discourse certainly i think lands a solid blow and you know that these problems are not just a function of people not believing in democracy. And if only, you know, we get more people to believe in democracy and more people to support democracy, then all our problems will be solved, but rather that we actually fix our political institutions in ways that, you know, allow democracy to actually work more closely to its ideal of being a representative space where we have discourse and persuasion and responsiveness. And so, you know, the, the other idea for, for our t-shirts should be it's the institutions, stupid. So thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of Politics in Question, and we're excited to be back with you real soon. Tune in next week. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.